And tonight, all of us are here have, um, with whatever difference, is one thing in common, and that is we are, we are all believers. We, we believe strongly in God. We believe in Jesus. Uh, we believe in the, the inspiration of the Bible. And then with that belief, have a concern about discipleship and some things that we need to do in order to please and serve God here on this earth. And so it's from within that framework uh, that I'd like to have the study tonight. And I'd like to introduce it by reading some excerpts from an article that was in this Monday's uh, Chattanooga News Free Press, and I'm sure in any number of, of newspapers because it's uh, taken from the an Associate Press writer. Um, a committee of the Church of John Calvin, this is about the something going on in the Presbyterian Church, now says that sex outside of marriage is okay as long as it's linked to justice love. Premarital sex, homosexuality, bisexuality, a whole range of activities long considered sinful by most Christian churches should be encouraged if the partners are genuinely consenting adults, according to the report that goes before the 203rd General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in June. Heterosexism, that means those that say the only right sex is the male-female relationship in marriage, Heterosexism is a new sin. And what matters most is not narrowly whether sexuality, sexually active adults are married or not, but rather whether they embody justice love in the relating according to the report. And then it says there has been a firestone of opposition within the church now, as it's including hostile overtures, urging rejection of the report from more than 80 of the church's 171 presbyters. But notice, more than 80 of the 171 presbyters, that amounts to about half. So that's saying that, that in the Presbyterian Church, their top people are split down the line over this statement that's been proposed. Okay. The report comes after more than two decades after American culture has undergone a revolution in sexual mores. Okay, so this statement is coming two decades after our society has gone a complete revolution in sexual mores. And so... First, the revolution of sexual mores in our society, then comes this report uh, to acknowledge where society is and embrace it as truth by the church. But, notice now, it comes at a time when other mainline churches are struggling bitterly over moral acceptability of homosexuality, and there is ebbing support in society at large for greater sexual activity. And so we see the pressure from society at large and the church responding here. Okay, um, he goes on to say, like most Christian churches, the Presbyterian Church has long, previous history, held sexual relations should be reserved for marriage. There are numerous prohibitions against fornication, adultery, homosexuality in the Bible. And although some scholars say the rules applied to a particular culture and may be reinterpreted, uh, they're taken seriously by many people in the pews. So notice what he's saying is, traditionally, through the years, most churches have held that the only uh, right expression of your sexuality is a heterosexual approach uh, through marriage. But it says that these scholars have concluded that, that these rules apply to a particular culture and they can be reinterpreted. And so after uh, two decades of sexual revolution... Uh, it's time the church reinterprets in this area. But 
we've got a problem. There are still some people in the pews that take it serious, uh, the old form of, of marriage and morality and all. But here's an interesting thing. While the church is heading in that direction that he's speaking of, and by the way, others that he mentioned, there also is some evidence of declining support for the sexual revolution in American culture. So at the same time we've had this revolution, there is now, within the culture at large, evidence of declining support for this free sexuality we've experienced. In May 1988, Gallup Poe, 85% of the U.S. adult respondents claimed to hold traditional values about family and marriage. In a March 1988 Gallup poll, 22% of respondents said they would welcome more acceptance of sexual freedom, while two-thirds said they would not welcome it. So what we have seen is, on the one hand, a church and some other claiming to be part of Christianity responding in keeping with the cultural influence and revolution of the past two decades. But a very interesting thing has happened in the culture at large as a result of the consequences are the fruits of this sexual revolution, many are changing back the other way and says, no, that I can see problems there. And so now two-thirds of them are saying, no, we don't need more sexual freedom. And 85% of the population is saying that no matter what they might practice, that what they really believe is the biblical concept of marriage. Okay. One major Protestant body, the United Church of Christ, allows ordination of active homosexuals. In the Episcopal Church, the Standing Commission on Human Affairs is recommending that local dioceses be allowed to ordain homosexuals. In a straw vote in February, a United Methodist Study Committee indicated its opposition to the Church's stand that homosexual practice is incompatible with Christian teaching. And so now the, the United Churches of Christ, the Episcopal <coughs> Church, the United Methodist Church, are all stating that uh, homosexuality should be accepted, they should ordain homosexual uh, ministers, and that any statement they've got in their creed uh, that would leave the impression that homosexuality is incompatible with Christianity ought to be done away with. Okay, it says, this report that come out is a bestseller. The typical committee report generally generates a request for 50 copies. But now this report has gone out and some 27,000 copies of the sexuality report already have been ordered, church officials have said. So they're heating up for a real debate within the Presbyterian church. All right, now, notice what really is under discussion there. First of all, it's something that all Christians are going to come to grips with. It may be something that's settled in your mind based on your teaching. But we're in a world where we're reaching people in the world who are believing this to various degrees. And, and we're going to have to react to that as a body and, and individually. And, and we need to think this thing through. But notice what really is under consideration is not this sexuality thing. It, it's, it's sexuality now. It could be something else later on. What really is under consideration is, is moral truth something that evolves in a culture, or is moral truth an absolute standard that is right under any and every circumstance? Okay? Now, the people that are arguing for the acceptance of homosexuality and of sex outside of marriage, and as long as you have consenting adults and all, 
Notice, sometimes conservative Christians try to handle them by saying, hey, don't the, the Bible says such and such and such, as if that these people didn't know the Bible said that or they didn't understand it. But notice that's not the problem. Those people know the Bible says that, and they understand what it's saying. But what they're saying is that what the Bible says on that was culturally biased, and it was a product of a, of a culture, and now the Holy Spirit has led us into uh, something else. So then the real question becomes, is what we have in the Scriptures revealed eternal truth, or is it evolving spiritual man that reaches a certain level, and there is always room for evolving and adaptation? And that's the question under consideration, and that's what we're going to discuss tonight. And I want you to think on it. And uh, we're going to start in a passage in the Old Testament. And the first thing that I'm going to do and some of the things we're going to read, I'm going to give you some passages that I'd like you to read if everybody has your, your Bible handy. And we're going to start there. Now, the first thing I'm going to do with this, because by the way, you're going to get this approach. Another place you're going to get it is when we discuss uh, the, the male-female relationship. Uh, is the man really to be the head of the family? Uh, uh, or is this a culturally biased statement of the Apostle Paul or whatever? Uh, when it comes to how we worship, uh, was, was the way in which we worship God just something out of that culture and, and the big thing is you just worship God or uh, it was the way they worship God something that had eternal truths to, tacked into it? So I'm saying it can go in any, any direction. And so what's really under question is whether the Bible is the product of spiritual men who believe in God, who are evolving in their spirituality, and, and that evolution is continuing, or it is the product of men guided by the Holy Spirit, who wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit and revealed the eternal truth of God for all time. That's what's really under consideration in this. Now, <clears throat> Here's the way, and I'm just going to tackle this one thing, and then we're going to throw the thing up and we'll read the verses. If you're dealing with somebody who has made this argument on homosexuality and, and the, the free sex and everything like that, and he knows what the Bible says, and his argument is that what the Bible teaches about marriage and all was culturally biased, turn over here to Leviticus, the 18th chapter to start with, in the Old Testament, man, a long time before we get to what we have in the New Testament. And... After Leviticus 18, we're going to look at Exodus 15:26, a statement relative to all the commands given by Moses. And then we're going to look at um, Deuteronomy 4, 5, and 8. And then we're going to look at um, the New Testament, uh, Romans 2, and uh, beginning with verse uh, 18. Okay? Uh, Ed, let's start with you over here in the, the 18th chapter and read to a convenient breaking spot in thought, and then uh, uh, Louise and Jack, you know, you all read it. If, if, by the way, if anybody has a cold or something and doesn't want to for whatever reason, just, just pass and let the next person take and we'll, we'll go on around. Okay, Ed, would you start? Unlawful sexual relations. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the man who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. 
Do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. Do not have sexual relations with your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether she was born in the same house or elsewhere. Do not have sexual relations with your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter. That would dishonor you. Do not have sexual relations with the daughter of your father's wife, born to your father. She is your sister. Do not have sexual relations with your father's sister. She is your father's close relative. Do not have sexual relations with your mother's sister, because she is your mother's close relative. Do not dishonor your father's brother by approaching his wife to have sexual relations. She is your aunt. Do not have sexual relations with your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would dishonor your brother. Do not have sexual relations with both a woman and her daughter. Do not have sexual relations with either her son, her son's daughter, or her daughter's daughter. They are her close relatives. That is wickedness. Do not take your wife's sister as a rival wife and have sexual relations with her while your wife is living. Do not approach a woman who, who has sexual relations during the uncleanliness of her monthly period. Do not have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Moloch, for you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. Do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That is a perversion. Do not defile yourself in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you defile, became defiled. Even the land was defiled. So I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you must keep my decrees and my laws. The native-born and the aliens living among you must not do any of these detestable things. For all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. Everyone who does any of these detestable things such persons must be cut off from their people. Keep my requirements and do not follow any of the detestable customs that were practiced before you came and do not defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. Okay, now let's notice just a few things. Obviously, going back to the law that Moses has given to these people, they didn't have unlimited sexual freedom. There's no question about that. He's very specific, and he could say a lot more. You know, I just picked, chose this. But here's the key I want to note it in. Look at verse 3. You must not do as they do in Egypt. These people have been in Egypt for several hundreds of years. This was their whole background. That's the way people lived. That was the culture. All these various things of having relations with beasts, homosexuality, all these different types of relations, that's what they were practicing in Egypt. Okay, then, down here in uh, verse 24, do not defile yourselves in any of these ways because this is how the nations I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. 
Even the land was defiled, and I punished it for its sin. Verse 30, keep my requirements. Do not follow any of the detestable customs that were practiced before you came. Okay? This law given by Moses was anything but culturally based. Egypt practiced all of these things that are called sin. The nations of Canaan practiced all of it. And God has already passed judgment on Egypt, and now he's going to use the Israelites. In fact, his statement will, will go on to say that, that the land would vomit these people out. So the law given by Moses stands separate and apart from the culture of these people. And it was the most sublime, pure, demanding, restrictive of anything these people ever come in contact with. And yet God is saying they may do it in Egypt and they may do it in Canaan. But that's why I've judged Egypt and that's why I'm going to judge Canaan. You don't do this. Okay, now, notice again after looking at that, flip over here to Exodus uh, 15 verse 26. And notice the statement here that he makes as he's giving all of the various laws, the, the health code, the various things and all. In fact, a book was um, based on this particular statement. Exodus 15 and verse 26. It said, If you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases that I brought on the Egyptians. I am the Lord that heals you. God says the laws I'm giving you are right. And if you obey these laws, you won't have the various diseases that are brought on the Egyptians. He points to the fact that they would not have those diseases as one of the evidences that this law is right in contrast to what was practiced. Now, there's many other points. I'm just dealing with one point there. All right, now, before we go on to the New Testament, uh, think just a minute on these uh, uh, those various sexual sins. We know that right now our society is spending billions of dollars trying to fight AIDS. I mean, literally billions of dollars uh, trying in a, in a society that's in a recession right now. We're coming up with billions of dollars. We also know, and everybody knows, that AIDS would be stopped dead in its tracks if we stopped the practice of homosexuality. I know it's in the heterosexual realm, but it got its start in the homosexual realm through anal relationships, and then as these uh, homosexuals had relations with bisexuals, the bisexuals picked it up from the homosexuals, the homosexuals and, and then they in turn took it into the heterosexual realm. So it got into the heterosexual family as a result of homosexuals having it, bisexuals who can go either way, picking it up from the homosexuals, and then when they have a relation with the heterosexual, they pass it on. It would never exist in just heterosexual relations. You have to have the homosexual relationship. But before the homosexual relationship, it has its origin in the green monkey in Africa where those people, through the practice of beastology, introduced AIDS into the human family. And then American rich homosexuals go into poverty areas where poor young boys and young men sell themselves in their poverty to rich homosexuals and those homosexuals picked it up from these people who had got it through beastology, bring it back to the states, spread it among other homosexuals, bisexuals pick it up from them, then it goes into the heterosexual community. Okay? So what happens to AIDS if we practice just this one part of sexuality as it's taught in the Bible? It doesn't exist. Okay? Right now, 
we don't even appreciate the fact because of penicillin and other antibiotics that all through the centuries syphilis and gonorrhea had been big killers and some very important prestigious people had died through the centuries because of syphilis and, and gonorrhea and we don't appreciate that because of our thing with antibiotics but a very strange thing is happening now in our own country we have developed a strain of gonorrhea that is resistant to the antibiotics that we have and resistant and syphilis that is also becoming resistant and so right now syphilis not just AIDS but syphilis and gonorrhea is on the increase in our society okay that owes again let's forget about the homosexuals it is a permissive sexuality with people having relations with a plurality of partners that causes all of the spread of syphilis and gonorrhea syphilis and gonorrhea herpes all of these various things do not even exist among people where you have one man married to one woman and neither of them having really one clean man marries one clean woman each are restricting the relationships there the sexual diseases don't even exist they just, they just don't even exist so in our society you're talking about billions and billions of dollars thousands and thousands and thousands of dead people little babies that are affected the number one cause of blindness used to be mothers with syphilis giving birth to babies that's why now they they have I think a silver nitrate they put in the baby's eyes when they're when they're when they're born but that used to be the number one cause of, of blindness among babies as, as they were born and so we look at this and we haven't even considered anything but the health we haven't got into the more the emotional or the family situation with children or anything the point I'm or I can see so far before I can get into the New Testament we have something here that would alleviate a lot of sickness if it was practiced something that would alleviate a lot of emotional problems something that would alleviate a lot of problems with children and all if it if it were practiced but we also notice something else it didn't depend on the culture it was not the product of the culture it was over and above the culture and god's attitude was change the culture and so for lack of time i'll quote this this the synopsis of this verse and you can read it on your own deuteronomy 4 5 through 8 if you obey these statues and commands then you will be a light to all the other nations around and they will look at you and say what nation is there that has laws that are so right as this nation and a god that is so near as this one and so he's saying that that these laws are so obviously right and you will benefit in an obvious way if you practice them and it'll be so obvious that if you practice these laws other nations will look at you and say hey their laws work they're right what nation has laws that work like those particular laws okay now let's come to the new testament to romans the second chapter okay romans the uh, second chapter and beginning with verse uh, 18 Romans 2 and let's see let's make sure I'm at the right place here oh wait a minute I must be Romans 1 18 Romans 1 and verse 18 and we want to read uh, through the rest of the first chapter okay Romans 1 beginning with verse 18 where did we leave off at it be I guess we'll pick it up with you Steve right okay start with Romans 1 18 uh, break at a convenient breaking point and then proceed on. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godliness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of God's invis 
For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things greater than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind, do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Okay, now notice, first of all, he speaks in verse 18 of God's wrath being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. In other words, uh, uh, all the godlessness. In other words, against all the ways we've deviated from God and the way he would have us go is wrath, okay? He says they suppress truth by their wickedness. And then what may be known about God is plain to them. God makes it plain or has made it plain. And he talks about the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made, so they're without excuse. So, in the same vein that David would say the heavens declare the glory of a creator, and the heaven is its firmament, or its truth, Paul here is saying that the invisible God, the creator, is declared by the creation. And man, with his intellectual ability, looks at the creation with all its complexity and, and all its perfection, and the only conclusion that he can come to is there had to be an intelligent creator. He said there's no excuse for him not coming to that. It's just as obvious as looking at a watch and, and saying that a watch had to have a mecca, that it didn't just happen. Uh, or looking at a car and saying it had to have a manufacturer. It, just, it didn't just happen. And in the same vein, he says, Paul said, there's, there's no excuse for anybody looking at our creation and not arriving at the conclusion of a creator. Okay, then why do people want to throw away the creator? With belief in the creator becomes accountability. You're not your own person. You can't just turn yourself loose. You become accountable to something. But if you want to live in the way that, that these people were living, in order to be able to do it and live with yourself, you have to kick the Creator out. And so man, he says, what leads to homosexuality and all of this godliness and all these various type sins that he talks about there? He says the first step is kicking the Creator out. And so therefore you're not accountable. And then you turn yourself all over to just the lust of your own flesh. And he says, well, what happens when people turn away from God and they're going to do nothing but follow the lust of their own flesh? That's all they're going to follow. He says, they become so absurd that men actually go around lusting after other men and women go around lusting after other women and they do things that actually is shameful and, and embarrassing in their degradation. 
And then he continues on with, with all of the godliness, and he says, the end result is envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, all of this. And it all goes back, and notice there he says in verse 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind. God didn't cause their mind to be depraved. God gives us free choice. And the end result of rejecting God and accountability to God and pursuing the lust of your own flesh is to wind up with a depraved mind and in the kind of condition that we have there. Okay, now, let's look again. As, it, as we go through Romans and we see a sense of morality, remember Paul would teach about God's law, uh, God's intention for marriage, and let the bed be undefiled, etc., and that the relation, all the sexual expression should be between a man and wife in marriage. In fact, he said in 1 Corinthians 7 that a man shouldn't even touch a woman sexually except uh, uh, through marriage. But what Paul is saying is not coming out of the culture of that Roman world. Uh, the people he's talking to were converted out of this practice right here. That was their culture. That was the world. It was not a sin to be a homosexual when Christianity had its birth. Uh, most of the emperors were either bisexual or homosexual. Uh, they were perverted in every imaginable way. They had diseases rampage as a result of their practices. They had all kinds of other moral problems for the practices. And so in this state of, of men married to plurality of wives, men having, and women having relationships in any way, shape, or form they desire, men hating one another, killing one another, a might made right in the Roman Empire, into that world comes Christianity. And into that world, Christianity says it's, it's sinful for a man to have anything but one wife. It's sinful for a man to have sexual relationship outside of the relationship with that one wife. It's sinful for men and men to lust after other men or women to lust after other women. It's also sinful to slander and do all these other various things. That man needs to recognize his creator, that he's made in the image of God, and he needs to start living in keeping with the Creator. So, this truth, these things about Paul. Now, this these, this committee here in the Presbyterian Church and the Episcopal Church and the United Churches of Christ or or any other group it may be. They may believe those things, and they've got a right to believe what they want to. But one thing that we can do a good job in pointing out and keep in mind what we're dealing with: the majority of people within Christendom don't buy into that. But what history will show is whatever the leaders buy into over a period of generation or two, and you find the majority of the members buying into it also. They're going to be the ones that write the literature, the textbooks, the Sunday school books, the commentaries on the Bible. That's where it's going to come from, is from that body of people that believe that. Okay, what you and I need to be able to do on a, is to point out whether you believe it or whatever you believe is your choice. God gives you free choice. But don't say that Paul taught this as a culturally biased thing, Paul flew in the face of his culture when he taught that. And Moses flew in the face of his culture when he taught that. And all of this morality that we have in the Bible, every last drop of it flew in the face of the culture. The culture of Rome was very similar to what we are headed for in the United States. Uh, we haven't had a, this cultural revolution in the past two decades has, has not been a step into something brand new. It's been a step into the way Rome was doing it almost 2,000 years ago and the way that a lot of people in the world have always done it. And it's actually been a step out of what Christianity brought into the world. So I'm saying the very least you can do that. This doesn't prove this is inspired. Other things will do with that. Okay, just like Paul says that, that the, the very creation will declare undeniably the creator. 
And so there will be other things that prove the inspiration. But one thing we can show beyond any doubt is the information is not culturally biased. In fact, one of the unique features of the Bible is that it is so contrary to the very culture that it seeks to reform. The, every statement in the Bible by the prophets, from Moses through all the prophets, through all the apostles, every single statement was designed to reform the thinking about God and about morality of the culture of, of those people. And the people that wrote it were the individuals who themselves had been reformed uh, from their culture by that information. Beginning all the way back with somebody like Abraham was, that was told to get up away from his idolatrous family and go out to a place where God would show him and God would develop his faith and, and make a strong nation and all from him. Okay, now a, a verse that we want to look at. Uh, by the way, before we look at anything else, I mean, let's pause now and I've talked. Anybody make any, any response, observation, uh, relative to the article or, or the direction we're headed in the Bible right now? Anybody have any response? Now, do you think it has to do with, uh, like some of those groups that you talked about, don't necessarily believe that the Bible is a, from God. I mean, totally. You know what I'm saying? It's not totally inspired. Where it's not. You understand what I'm saying? That they don't accept it as the total word of God or whatever. Do you think that people's lack of confidence in that we are dealing with, you know, commandments from God or whatever, and they don't understand the, all the things behind the Bible and why that we can trust it as a message from God or whatever? Do you think it has to do with their you know, like they would teach it, it's a custom, you know, when, right. even if you read the text, it's not. But. Their belief would be, those who believe that, is rather than the Bible be a revelation from God to man, the Bible is man seeking after God and, 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 and headed in, in that direction, and that uh, the uh, material is inspired in the same way that Shakespeare is inspired. And so these were spiritual, God-seeking people that were inspired and wrote and had impact, but all of it is an evolving type thing, and we continue to go. All right, that I'm saying that is what they teach. Now, the interesting thing is that at this point still, most of the people from within these groups believe in the inspiration of the Bible in the way that, that you and I do, and, and, and maybe not, not understanding some of the same reasons, but, but actually believe and have a respect. And it's the theologians at the top who believe the other. But the theologians at the top are winning more and more and more and more to the extent, and this is a, from a statistic I read in a, the magazine called The Christian Chronicle about, uh, I guess, six or seven months back. It said, at the, on the one hand, we've got as big a percentage of our population that would call themselves Christian now as we had at the turn of the century. But it said, here's the difference. At the turn of the century, about 41% of our population would have been conservative, fundamentalist Christians who believed in the complete inspiration of the Bible. Now, about 31% believe in the complete inspiration of the Bible. So there's been a big swing from 41 down to 31 of those who believe in the full inspiration of the Bible, even though the, the percentage of those who believe in God and in inspiration in a certain sense would actually be about the same. Well, that has had a, so that is the effect of the theologians within the churches. Uh, they are having their effect. They have the effect through their Sunday school literature. Uh, I had a conversation with Ed on several occasions. In fact, when uh, Ed and I had, had been studying sometime at school, uh, Ed was, uh, and I had got studying, and we started studying some things about evidences for God and, and the Bible and things like that, and we were talking back and forth, and Ed began to go to a, 
a particular church uh, down where he lived. Presbyterian church. Presbyterian church. All right. After he'd been there a while, Ed was becoming very studious. And, uh, of course, I'll tell you, I know Ed very well. He's a very studious, very intelligent person. And so right away he's studying, and it becomes obvious to them he's pretty studious, so I ask him to teach the class. You know, even though he's had, really, he's just beginning in this very serious study. Well, as he begins to teach the class, they give him the Presbyterian literature, you know, with its commentary and all. And so what happened is, he, he come and started talking to me. He says, this literature would produce more doubt than it would faith. And he had a problem here. He thought these people believed and all. And here the literature was actually going in the direction of promoting unbelief. Well, the people themselves there, most would have been believers and all. But the hierarchy, and that's, here's the hierarchy right here. They don't have that belief, and they're writing the literature. Well, many of those people will just simply teach their lessons from that literature without ever even reading the other side or coming in contact with other information or anything like that. And not only that, in these groups that have central organizations and all, the central organization appoints so many times the minister down here. So they wind up with a minister that thinks like the central organization rather than thinks like they do about the Bible on, on, any, on any number. Well, the end result is, over uh, from the turn of the century to now, that we have lost from 41 to 31 percent of professing Christians who now are in this category of, have, of, on the one hand, believing in God, but not having the same kind of respect for the Bible, etc. All right. One of their arguments has been what is put forth here. Every, in fact, every argument I've heard them put forth when they try to get into this new morality and all is this cultural thing. Well, the one thing you can show in a no if and but, believe it's inspired or not believe it's inspired, there is no question that the Bible teaches morality in a plain statement type way. And not only is it not culturally biased, it flies in the face of the culture. Uh, there is nothing in the Roman culture that could have caused Paul to think in the way he did. There was nothing in the Egyptian culture that it could have caused Moses to think in the way he did about morality and God. That it was the Egyptians practiced. In fact, we don't not we don't just have Moses' word here and Paul's word. All we have to do is get out our archaeology books and our history books and go back to the time of Moses and the time of, of Paul, and we find this was the world. That is, and, and Christianity and Judaism was absolutely unique with this form of morality that it that it brought to the world. And so that is that's just another thing we can see. Let's get over this, this thing about evidence for inspiration. The consequences of that way of life is evident. And the benefits of this other way of life is an evident type thing. All right, now, uh, Barbara, you had something you were going to say? No, I was just going to say, don't you think that that would probably be taught to, in a subtle way to where the people don't even realize what's happening until eventually they just keep introducing a little bit until eventually it's there, sort of like sure. with the TV or our textbooks that the high people that don't believe it, it eventually filters down to us. And so oh. now our textbooks teach evolution sure. from the word go, yeah. or I should say vertical right. evolution. And and I think the same thing with TV programs, say 10 years ago, they couldn't have got by with all of this, the, the language that's used and the homosexuals on TV and the immorality and the dress and everything. But they just filtered it down little by little and used comedy to poke fun at Christianity, etc. And now we have no Christian family on TV. Well, what you can see is just like what you see on TV in the morality really does not represent the thinking of the majority of the people all during the time it's come forth. But what we have seen is those people that controlled and edited that over 20 years, we've seen their effect. Mm -hmm. 
on humanity. There is an effect. And so I'm saying that somebody can read this now and say, no big deal. Uh, some theologians believe that. But history will show that whatever the leadership believes, give them several generations, and that is what the majority will, will wind up believing. If somebody doesn't stand up like a, a Martin Luther or whoever it might be and tackle the, the issue. Uh, one of the greatest sins, I believe personally, that is being committed by, by devout Christians today is apathy. We're so caught up in, in having a good time and enjoying the prosperity of this wealthy country that we're not sacrificing and expending ourselves in order to stand up in the way the prophets did. Uh, Moses reached a point in his life where he had to take a stand. With a, he could take his stand in Egypt and be king for a day. Uh, you know, like you have queen for a day, he could be king for the rest of his life. Or he could take a stand with the people of God, suffer all the consequences of that stand, but then head into a situation that he knew was better. He, he took his stand. And I think Joshua reached the point where he took a stand and he says, you do what you want, but it's for me and my house. We're going to serve the Lord. And he told us, if you want to serve the Lord, go burn your idols up and turn from that way of life and turn to God. And we need more Christians to take a stand. And, and many of these people now that are in these groups that, she's, that, that we're dealing with here are very sincere, conscientious people that are just simply coming in contact with that information and, and that alone. Mark? How do, you, how do you do that? You don't just go out on a street corner and stand up and preach to people, do you? I mean, you, you see what I'm saying? I guess you live your life, and, you know, mm -hmm. but... How do you define okay. these people in a right way or whatever? I, I Look at Christianity in the first century. And here's Rome as Paul pictures it. How did Christianity overthrow the Roman Empire and change its morality? There, there's no free elections. There's no democracy. And how did they do it? Converted the people. Converted them one by one. Spread like the common code. Uh, Christianity spread by, by taking this message and, and number one went the evidence for God, for those that needed it. In other words, when you talk with a Jew, you don't need to convince him of God. You know, when you talk to a pagan, you need a little argument there. Uh, and then to the Jew, you need to convince him of Christ. And so whatever a person needed, first convince him of God, then of Christ, that was the step in conversion. To God, to Christ, as, as, as God's sacrifice for our sins. And then, based on that, uh, this, is, this follows here. All right? Their lives were apart. Like in that pagan world, Peter said that to wives that were married to husbands that were pagans and unbelievers, it says by your chaste behavior to lead him that hasn't been won by the word. Keep in mind that everybody's made an image of God. And in his own, he has a conscience or a sense of ought. And so although he may be practicing certain things like this, his conscience really doesn't go along with it. And, and Paul gets to that. Look at this second chapter now in, in verse uh, 12, and we're going to see the part that we can do there. Okay. Before you go on, could I just make a comment, too? I think along with that, um, just obviously trying to convert people and, and living right yourself and hopefully being a light, something that is attractive and they'll want to be part of that. Along with that, I think that it's a shame that people that are trying to make an impact in the world, like um, this Wildman, is it Wildman? Donald Wildman, yeah. Donald, Donald Oh, it's not 10%. Well, whatever. About 4%. Fewer, right, fewer. It's having such an impact and, and getting so much accomplished, and yet supposedly 80% or whatever it is now of the American people claim to be Christians, and yet we don't get upset or excited or we don't go and try to get things yeah. done. And I, I think it's, I, and I think maybe we're just too busy. I mean, even, you know, 
I try and I, I do certain things, but I just think somewhere along the way well, we have to find the time. You can do it while you're busy, though. I think that's what we're going to get to. I think that, that um, Christians just going to have to make the time and get upset about these huh. things and try to do something. Look at... Uh, and we try to reach out, and I, what you, I'm going to get back to what you brought up because that, with Donald Wildman and some things there, because what we're concerned with is, like we said, as believers, now, what can we do? In other words, we, 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 what can we do? And that's the question that Mark has brought up and all, too, that what, what can we do and all. I want to note something as we began to do what we're going to talk about, some things that we've got going for us as we reach into the minds of people. On the one hand, these people are practicing this that we've read. Let's look at something. Look at beginning with verse 12 of chapter 2 and on down through verse 16. Uh, who did we get up to? Okay, uh, Sam, would you read that please? Uh, 12 through 16. For as many who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And as many, have, and as, many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the same thing, contained in the law, these, although not having the law, are the law to themselves. What verse did you say? Verse uh, through verse 16. Okay. Who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and, be, and between, them, when between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing themselves. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Right, notice what he said. Why does Paul hold people outside the law of Moses as guilty of sin, even though they don't have that written law. He's, he's, what Paul has nailed down here is both Jew and Gentile are guilty of sin. And the question could be raised, how can the, how can the Gentile be guilty when he, hasn't, he doesn't have the written law at this point? Well, he says, it's not those who, who hear the law that's righteous, but those who obey the law. But look, in verse 14, Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law. They are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show the requirements of the law written on their hearts, their conscience bearing witness with them, even their thoughts, accusing or even defending them. Paul has already said in Romans 1 that nobody has any excuse for rejecting God. The creation declares the creator. Okay, and we could take that a lot further, but we'll leave it there and, you know, in other lessons with the arguments. Now he says... There is no reason for rejection of God's law. He says, you're made in the image of God. You've got a conscience. You've got a sense of alt. And we, even if I never read one word in the Bible, I could not steal from you and my conscience couldn't and not condemn me. Because intellectually, my, my conscience will condemn me on anything I do that I perceive as being wrong. That's why we feel guilt. Uh, and so I come along and I don't want anybody stealing from me. Well, therefore, I perceive you don't want anybody stealing from you. So, therefore, when I steal from you, I do something that I know is wrong, and the end result is I feel guilty. I don't want anybody, any man, uh, having relations with my wife when I know that other men don't want me having relations with their wife. And so, therefore, if I do that, I don't do it in good conscience. I know that I've done something wrong, and I feel guilty as a result of it. Uh, I don't want anybody murdering me, so how in the world can I in good conscience murder anybody else? So Paul is saying here that, that we have a conscience, a, a sense of ought, and we're accountable to that. And so the Gentile could recognize his sinful condition as well as you. Now here's what that says. Let's get back now. Using this, how do we reach out into this world that's been influenced this way? Everybody out there that this guy is talking to is made in the image of God. And we need to keep in mind that these men and women have marriages. They're rearing children. 
in their heart, do they actually perceive this kind of thing is right? I mean, this, uh, this woman, does she perceive that it would be right for her husband to have relations with whoever he wanted to and, and, vi and vice versa? Well, I don't believe so. I believe they stand condemned in of their own conscience. And so I'm saying that when we stand up and speak, even though we are in the minority in our culture in standing for these terms, you're, you're speaking to hearts that will respond to this. They may not grab it and put it into practice, but they're going to believe it. In the same way, remember uh, the statement in the Bible where Herod heard John gladly, and Herod was a reprobate. But he identified inwardly with the preaching of John, and he knew that John was a righteous man, and he didn't want to take his life. Well, it's interesting, not just the Bible, but uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, <coughs> writes about Herod's reluctant taking of the life of John, and that how that Herod identified with his preacher and thought of him as a, as a righteous person. So I'm saying even a person as wicked as Herod inwardly identified with the preaching of John the Baptist, didn't want to take his life, he knew that he had sinned when he took his brother's wife. And he did what he did, knowing that he was wrong, and simply giving in, giving into it. Pilate was no dummy. He, did what, he, he knew that Jesus was a righteous man and did not want to take his life. So when we stand up, every person we're reasoning with is made in the image of God, and they've got a conscience just like we do. And just as this here sounds right to you and you inwardly identify with it and you can see the consequences of the other way, I mean, you can see what happens when marriages are lived like this and what happens to children when they're brought up like this and what happens to a society. Look at our own society and the homicides and, and the sexual sins and the consequences of it. We can see all that and we're not dummies. Well, other people can see the same thing. So when we speak up, truth speaks to the heart of that person that is made in the image of God. And of course, we can get, get into the evidences like the prophecies and its fulfillment and the, uh, the accounts of the resurrection, etc., you know. But I'm saying even right here, you can get into any conversation. So Mark, like you was mentioning, how, what do you do in this society? I believe at work, at school, regularly, you're in contact in situations where your conversation deals with all of this. And you have the opportunity to, to speak up. When people are talking about all of these various type things, you can sit there and just listen to them talk and say absolutely nothing, which I believe is what, what most Christians do most of the time. You can listen to them embrace and even defend these type of things. For example, it is so common today for people to live together outside of marriage and, and to forego all responsibility of marriage, something like that. Or you can speak up and say, I believe that is wrong. It, it's, uh, it's condemned. I believe that the Bible has extremely strong evidence behind its inspiration. And I believe the very fruits of what's happening in our society is an example of the truthfulness of the account. And you have a chance to speak up. I think sometimes as Christians, we don't even speak up in our own families. I, I, know, I, know, I know myself. I couldn't even start to count them all. Uh, professing Christians who have either sons or daughters or aunts or uncles or grandmothers or grandfathers, etc., who are living uh, lives that are as at variance with the will of God. They have all kinds of contact with them, social contact, Christmas contact, all kinds of contact. They never speak out and denounce that sin. Never. In other words, our idea of denouncing the sin is invite them to a gospel meeting once a year and let, let the preacher have a shot at them. If, if, we, if we can get them in the door once a year, you know, we've been our job. But to feel any responsibility to confront these people and to confront the sin and try to get them to repent we don't do it, and the reason we don't do it 
It's because it's very difficult. There's going to be some people who get mad at us. John got his head cut off. Jesus was executed. Uh, they, they dipped old Jeremiah in the mud, threw him in a dungeon. Paul writes most of his letters from jail. And so that it's, it's not. Uh, the very person that you talk to may tell you it's at, your life is none of, his life is none of your blankety-blank business and go your old way fine. I'm saying that on the other hand, he might think seriously about what you've said and you might be a big factor in his repenting. You see, just like Agrippa said, almost thou persuadest me. Well, Paul was in there plugging away, wasn't he? He didn't get him, but he was sure plugging away and trying to, and trying to get everybody else that he could reason with. And so I think we need, to, we need to talk more. We need to talk in our own family. We need to talk about our friends and acquaintances and on the job and all. We need to stand up for moral principles. And then as we live our own lives in this culture, we need to be aware that we have the opportunity to be a light, to show what a life looks like that's lived in compliance with this, and that we ought to be standing up for those principles all the way through. Uh, Peter said to be ready to give an answer of anybody that asks you of the hope that lies within you in meekness and fear. Another uh, insight you have into talking with people, everybody dies. we got that in common. And nobody wants to die. And in Christ, we, we've got the only hope going. Uh, they go visit the tomb of Mohammed, and we talk about an empty tomb. And, and Christianity is, not only is it the uh, whatever the, the most numerous people in the world were the only religion in the world that has an empty tomb for its founder, and I and it, and nobody nobody and, and the interesting thing is nobody even debates that tomb was empty. The whole question is how did it become empty? That's that's always been the debate. Not that they killed him, they buried him, and they and he come out of that and he was out of that grave. But how did it become empty? And every Christian ought to be aware of the evidence for for the resurrection itself. Um, I think I was just going to make a comment on why you you hit on this. Uh, I think part of it, I, I guess I've been brainwashed some in that people say, well, just leave them alone and, you know, don't bother them and let them make up their own mind yeah. and, and don't take a stance. Just like now you're even hearing things like don't, parents ought not to tell their kids what's right. right, that you ought to let them, you know, just grow up and, and don't, don't tell them anything. Just let them learn and make up their own mind and right. we'll do a little, you know, get in the class and, and make up your mind about, well, let's, what, what if this happened? What would you do? And, right. and let them do it like that. And, and it's like, Every, you hear that on every side, and I guess that's part of it. And, and you know, and even hearing statements from some Christian people I know is, well, you can't talk to people. You have to just live your life, and, uh -huh. and they'll see that your life is right. And that may happen, but uh, you know, I, I agree. And like we said, the a lot of Christians I think have allowed themselves to be influenced by that. Jesus. The Jesus that a lot of people portray. In fact, I heard a guy preach a sermon on this some years back, and I preached it in different ways a number of times through the years. Tyler's sermon, the Jesus who never lived. Uh, the Jesus who lived walked into the temple with a whip and cleaned house. And he kicked over tables. Uh, and, and, he, and, he, and made some very... The Jesus that lived walked to the, up to the religious leaders and called them hypocrites and whitewashed tombs. Uh, the Jesus that lived was a very plain-spoken individual. He had all the compassion on the world, on adulterers and thieves and etc. But with that compassion, he called them to repentance. And, and when he met the religious leaders and all, he met them face-to-face -face in, in, in discussion and all, and, and man didn't give an inch. Uh, the Jesus that lived purposely broke the traditions of his day. I mean, he purposely broke grain and ate it on the Sabbath day. And he purposely went out of his will to heal people, way, way to heal people on the Sabbath day and, and break the Jewish conceptions of the Sabbath day where they had made it a burden on, on other people. 
So I'm saying he was a he was a very outspoken individual. They they didn't kill Jesus because of the way that he lived his life. They killed him because he refused to let everybody believe exactly what they wanted to believe. And all the apostles went to their death for that very thing. And we don't. For, Jesus didn't teach us to force anything on anybody. In fact, he said, "Don't cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample you underfoot." In other words, if you begin to talk, and this guy becomes vicious, and and he makes it clear that he don't want anything what you say, don't force the issue. Say, uh, shake the dust off. He tells you, shake the dust off your feet and walk off. But we got that responsibility to talk, and we never know what we are. We're so so like I remember a friend of mine who's a. I was talking to Sam about him once. He's a very good friend of mine, and he's a salesman, and he's been very successful as a salesman. Uh, Mark knows, Hugh. And uh, he, I remember him telling me, he says, the key to being a successful salesman is, first of all, you have to develop the ability to take a no and, and to take a turn down. And all he says, if you, it says, some people are just crushed when they're turned down, and says, you've got to keep going for the ones that you get. Well, I think we are so concerned that somebody will turn away from us or they don't want to hear us and our feelings will be hurt, and we're sort of like the, the young guy that's just starting the dating game, and, and he wants to ask this little gal out, but he's scared she'll say no, so he never asks her out. And he don't know what she'll say, so he never asks. Well, I think we're scared that they won't ex express any interest, and I think we need to get out there like good salesmen, and with the idea that we've got the only product in the world that can save a person's soul. Uh, the Democrats or the Republicans, either one, don't have the answer to this country's problems. Uh, Christianity does. Uh, capitalism doesn't have the answer to the problems of the world. Christianity does. And, and that we need to go out with that attitude and approach everybody in our family and all we come in contact with, that we have the answers to your marriage, we've got the answers to your children, uh, bringing them up in a successful way, uh, we've got the answers to the school system, and we, we've got the answers to society, but most important, we've got the answers to eternal life. And we, I think we ought to be very assured and confident and and speak out more. And I agree with you that uh, we've, we've been bamboozled and almost to the point that we're led to believe it's unchristian to, to speak out in, in a plain way. Somebody else would comment? Donald Wildman. Or how many here are... Albert, are you familiar with the American Family Association? Uh, we send the magazine to a number of different ones. Now, Donald Wildman was a minister in the United Methodist Church that started speaking against pornography and a lot of these various things and found that he couldn't do it from within the United Methodist Church, so he stepped out and on his own started preaching and fighting pornography and the various things and trying to get Christians to fight pornography and all in our society. As a result of his effort and all, that I get his publication every month and some of you do and all, as a result of that effort by the American Family Association, used to be called the National Federation of Decency, there's been a lot of talk shows and things like that, there have been hundreds of 7-Eleven stores, uh, other type stores that have pulled pornography off their shelves. Uh, Chrysler just recently quit advertising in Playboy and Penthouse and things like that because of, of his efforts. And what he does, he encourages Christians to go to places that they do business with, and if you find out that they sell pornography, whether it's a motel that's selling pornography in, in their videos or a store or whatever, to tell them that that you cannot, that you feel that in you're supporting them in their business, you're condoning that, and it, and you cannot do business with them if they're going to continue to sell pornography. Well, the end result has been a multitude of businesses have changed. There have been motels that have pulled it out. It's been pulled off the shelves. 
He's had all kinds of effects. Right now, he's fighting the National Endowment of Arts and some of the things that they're funding and all. But the biggest problem he's got is getting Christians to speak out. For example, do you know what the number one promoter of uh, pornography is uh, so far as the videos are concerned in the United States? Number one promoter, Holiday Inn. More than 90% of Holiday Inns. Uh, you go in and you, you can pay a little extra and um, they give you your choice of pornography. And, and, they, it's, and they make billions of dollars. Uh, all right? There have been a number of denominational groups that are boycotting Holiday Inn and other individuals and all, and they, it doesn't do any good to not use them unless you let them know. For example, Barbara and I called up Holiday Inn on some trip thing that we were taking some time back and told them that, that although we have used them in the past and we like them, they're a good family motel, that we would be unable to use them in the future because of their support. We felt that we were condoning that in coming in, and we registered our complaint. So, but yet, uh, there are... Churches of Christ, I use that because that's the group I've been affiliated with and all, that still hold uh, gatherings and things of that nature where they use the Holiday Inn just like there, even though you might have a motel down the street, is dead set against pornography and will not, will not do it. And they forego the income not to do it. And yet we go ahead like it's nothing. And so I'm saying we can become aware of these things and we can speak out and, and, and have an effect. He's had a tremendous impact. I mean, he's, made the, he's been on Donahue. He's been all over the place. He's been called everything under the sun. They did cartoons on him. He's just no country preacher from Mississippi that's done a whole lot more for the Lord than a lot of people with bigger names and are better speakers than what he is. He's not that good speaker. Not a great speaker. Heard him. He's not Strictly a, a country boy. He's uh -uh. done a tremendous job. Had to really appreciate yeah, him. he's a fighter mm -hmm. and a and, and very moral individual. And for him, uh, he'll tell you right now, the easiest he ever had it in his life was a, was a country preacher in the Methodist church. And he said he'd give anything to his, go back to his days when he was just a minister for a local congregation, and now he's out there on his own and, and fighting, and even his own brethren have denounced him, you know, and have, don't have a lot to do with him. I had to say something, or I did say something, Michelle, I saw Geraldo, uh, when we were reading in Romans 1, where it says they invent ways of people, oh. and some of the things that these people come up with, I mean, it, it, it's, it's embarrassing to even think about, and it's just, you just think, how in the world do they even imagine such, yeah. you know, the homosexuals, lesbians, and so on, you think, how do they even come up, how do they invent oh. such What they're ways doing with the little children, people? I mean, they... The child pornography that's that's being pushed and sold right under our nose and, 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 and the people that are affected. Uh, I know I deal with, right over here at a little bitty old country school like this, since I've been principal there, there has been, there's never been a year, and right now I've got several small children that have been sexually abused uh, by their parents or foster care. In fact, Barbara was just telling me about a little first grade girl today. Uh, that's in, a, in her program that's been sexually abused uh, from within the family situation. Uh, I'm talking about fathers, stepfathers, and other peoples in the family. They see pornography, they pick this up in their mind, and some of these people are practicing it, and I mean it's downright perversion, but it's going on right here in, in a little country area like this. Now, I think we need to be speaking out, and uh, Martin, I think in a, plain, in a plain way, and I think there's a lot of full-time evangelists that are more concerned about their house and their salary and a big, a big large <laughs> congregation and a lot of people than they are standing up for moral truth. And, and, and they're more concerned that they might run off uh, somebody that wants to uh, play a little hacky sack out here somewhere <laughs> that, than, they, than they are standing up for morality. And, I think we all, I think, and then another thing I think we can do 
anytime there is this person, whether it's a Donald Wildman or whoever it is, that is standing up for plain Christian morality and all, support them. Uh, just a letter to somebody letting them know that you appreciate what they're doing and can do everything in the world when a, when a person's been out there and is, is getting knocked around as a result of, of standing up. If a politician like you know, Jesse Helms, for example, now I don't, I'm not saying I agree with Jesse on everything he says, but when he stands up in the United States Senate uh, with his belief in God and denounces homosexuality and immorality and things like that, uh, from my standpoint, it's, it's commendable. Uh, that on whether I may agree, agree with him or disagree with him on any other number of other things, and whoever it may be that will stand up. Uh, when you've got a president that will make it clear that he believes in God and he prays to God and he has certain moral principles, well, I think complimenting people that do right things is just as important as tackling the other. Any other comment? And then within the church, another thing uh, that the, the job, when you read the book of Acts, the church's primary thing was evangelism, evangelizing, converting others, like we talk about converting one by one. When I was converted in the 50s, the, the number one thing in the church was evangelism. I was converted through personal evangelism. Uh, I wouldn't have been reached if somebody didn't ask me to a church service and invite me back and offer me transportation and, and want me to bring my family. Somebody had to go to that effort or I, I, I wouldn't be reached. Uh, the, I got started preaching through a church that had a personal evangelism program where they went out into houses. Now, anymore, personal evangelism is down the tubes. Now we're concerned about church softball teams and church basketball teams and church bowling teams and and uh, and quilting parties and and I'm not saying that any of those are wrong. You know, I play basketball and I watch basketball, so don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying it's wrong, but I'm saying the church has turned into a social organization that is more concerned about having fun together and enjoying this kind of fellowship than we are getting out there and fighting what's wrong. And and it's just a matter of time. We can't play ball. Let's play ball one night, but let's get out there and, and try to convert somebody on another night. We can't play ball every night. And so I think, and, and I, so you can stand, just standing up in your church and saying, hey, if we're going to play basketball, fine, but is it really right to devote two nights a week to the church softball league and we don't have one night for personal evangelism where we're going to go out and try to reach somebody for Christ? Okay. Anybody else want to say anything before we? I had a little story that my supervisor told me about, about a couple of weeks ago. After I got thinking about it, it really started kind of bothering me a little bit, but he's kind of third hand now, but there was a, two men that worked together, and one of them went to California on a business trip, and while he was out there, he went to Billy Graham crusade, and he became a Christian, and when he got back to work the, the next week, well, he, he got with this fellow he'd been working with for about 15 years, and he said, I've just got to tell you what happened to me while I was on this trip. I went to uh, Billy Graham crusade and, and gave my life to Christ, and I just felt like I needed to share that with you. And the other guy said, well, he said, I'm so glad to hear that. I've been praying for you for years and years. And the guy said, you've got to be kidding me. He said, you're a Christian? He said, I've used you for an excuse for years of why a person doesn't have to be a Christian to be a good person. And so he's you know, worked with him side by side for all these years. He never known. And, no. and it's really humorous, but I got to thinking about, you know, my cousins and, and people that I know that, that I that know being by name and all, and, and could they would they know that I'm really a dedicated Christian? Mm -hmm. 
And it's kind of, when you think about it like that, it's kind of convicting to me about what, what we're doing. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. We had a, a assembly the other day at school, the other week, uh, part of the drug program we've got at school called D.A.R.E., and we had a, a policeman that conducted in sixth grade. And so at the conclusion ceremony, he invited a speaker. And I don't know, it's Randy Smith, who used to be on Channel 12 News, and now he's a color commentator for the University of Tennessee Vols. And so I don't know what to expect. I know he's going to speak against drugs and try to motivate the kids. So he comes in there, and he lives at Whitwell. And I didn't know that, you know. And he's big, impressive-looking individual and all, and he gets bigger. But I thought, again, getting back to the opportunities you've had, got all these kids, and man, they just they were up there getting his autograph and everything like that, you know. Here's this TV personality, and everybody likes the balls down here, you know, and he's up there. So he gets up, and, and, he, and he gives them the key to success in life. And he says, put God, he says, God, family, and job. He told about turning down a job that would have offered him a lot more money because it would have demanded that he work 60 hours a week, and he, and he couldn't put God first and do that. And when he talked about drugs, he did it from the perspective, if God is first in your life, everything else is going to fall in place. Well, they were listening not to a guy that was a preacher. That guy who is a color commentator for the Tennessee Vols had more impact on them than I would have had, people knowing that I'm a minister, stand up and saying exactly the same thing. And so when you as an engineer or whoever take a stand for the Lord in a certain audience, you have an impact that goes beyond a, maybe a minister or somebody else taking it in that in that same stand. But I believe every opportunity, whether you're on a plane or anywhere, you've got opportunities to take a stand and, and to convey information. And if you're a decent person, how can you be a light for the Lord unless people, like the example Mark used, unless people know that you're that way because you are a Christian? You're just not naturally that way. You're not naturally a good person. Uh, you're that way because of your belief in God. Did I ever tell you about my best crew of folks on the river? So I get this group of kids. <clears throat> we're going to go down the river. And we take the raft. We put it down the ramp. And we're unloading all the junk. And got us rope and all this. First aid kits and all this thing. And I look down there. And they're all praying around the raft. And I said, oh, no. You know, they're going to be scared the whole way. And after they prayed around that raft, that was it. They wanted to do everything after that. <laughs> they were a fearless group. <laughs> totally fearless after that. They had the best time of any crew I've ever had. Uh -huh. Funnest group, you know. Yeah. They started off. They had prayer. They, had, they, they prayed, but they prayed on the raft. You know, they no uh -huh. holes, no nothing on the raft. They had his teacher, and then on weekends during nice weather, he's a guide on the Okoye River, and he takes people on raft trips down it. Text 